0: All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. I want you to turn in your uh, Bibles, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. And we're going to be starting at the second half of verse 4. Second half of verse 4. A wise coach knows the competition. He studies tapes of the other team and prepares his team for the struggle via discipline, training information. He informs of strategies the opposition will use in order to to ensure victory for his own team. In the text before us, uh, Jesus Christ functions like a good coach. He knows what is coming to his disciples, and he begins to prepare his own for his imminent departure, the one that he has been speaking about for an extended period of time in the Gospel of John. He is also preparing them for the struggle and the fruitfulness that awaits them. So this is, as you open this text, this is a sober discussion about a rather serious aspect of the ministry of Christ. The moment is, as one writer called it, epic. Uh, Trying to grasp and trying to comprehend the, the fullness of all that is going on in this moment is incredibly difficult, and if you strive to to kind of capture it all, you'll get a better picture of what Jesus is saying and you'll have a better understanding, I believe, of why he is saying it. We've come to the last evening of Christ's physical life prior to his crucifixion. The disciples are troubled by the teaching of Jesus that he is moving to the cross in order to bear the price of their sin for their benefit and their forgiveness. Judas is gone and fear and anxiety builds as they await the next step in God's plan. Most concerned, they are about his departure and what it means for them. The seriousness of Christ's promises to move on are starting to sink in. So if you were to say to me, what is the purpose of the discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples? And I think you need to understand that to understand how this text applies to and informs us and our struggles and difficulties. I think the purpose and aim of this text is stated in verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus says, All of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. And the word fall away is interesting because it, it, in the Greek the word is scandalizomai. We get the word to be scandalized. The idea is to be tripped up by an event that takes you down and takes you out of play. A stick thrust between the legs knocking an opponent to the ground. That's the idea of the word Jesus' concern for the disciples is that upon his departure, they are not so unaware of what's coming that they are scandalized by the fear that ensues and by the pressure that ensues that they stumble as a result of that pressure. So he, he speaks in this context, all this I have told you, so that you will not be tripped up or fall off the course of your calling. Now I want to read the second half of verse 4 and following. Jesus says, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So for the disciples, there is a deep sense of comfort in the presence of Christ. I was thinking of this uh, earlier this morning. I was thinking about when I went to college. I had uh, the privilege of growing up in a family business. I knew very little time apart from time with my family, and particularly with my dad. And I had become very accustomed to that it wasn't an easy life it was a very hard-working life but there was something in the midst of that hard demand about the fact that he was typically nearby i remember my dad taking me to college i remember getting out of the car and saying okay this is my new life i also remember when he drove away that for for me at that age for the first time in my life he wasn't around and that led to a season of adjustment and trying to come to grips with what it means to be on your own, as it were, and to start a new life where you're ultimately responsible for your decisions. And I, I can't say that there wasn't some sense of anxiety. I wasn't the kid waiting for freedom from my parents. I was the kid that kind of enjoyed the presence of my father. It was a blessing to me. And the thought of that not being there, being 11 hours away by car, I don't even know if they had airplanes when I went to college. Uh <laughs> It was disorienting. It was like, okay, that's something i got to adjust to. I was raised to deal with responsibility. So in a sense, my dad had coached me into some of what that would mean and how to handle relationships and and deal with life uh, reasonably and responsibly. And Jesus says, I didn't tell you these hard things. I was with you. You didn't need to know about it at that point. We were in this growing phase of the relationship. But, verse 5, now... I am going to him who sent me. Now, here Jesus very pointedly talks about departure. The disciples had been with him for three years. As long as Jesus was present, Jesus was the object of the critiques that came. He was the object of the opposition and the assaults that came against the group. He was the leader. And so he had sensed and, 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 and took on the responsibility of bearing all of that. So the disciples were, in a sense, shielded by his presence. Now... They're hearing the shields going away. And in fact, as you study the text in the Gospel of John, the pressure has been mounting against the work of Christ, opposition, and ultimately a desire for his crucifixion. That thought was not comforting to the disciples. They didn't have a category to slot that in. And so there's this sense of anxiety that builds in them. I am going to him who sent me. And then the text gets fascinating. Jesus says, none of you ask, where are you going? Instead, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. All right, so let me just see if I can unpack this for you. Verses 4 through 6 are a fascinating portion of Scripture. Jesus tells them that he's going. None of the disciples who have been called by Christ and are in the process of being sent. If you go back through chapters 13 14 and 15 you'll find that there was clear discussion about the empowerment of the coming of the spirit the filling of them with the purpose of doing effective mission all of that has been stated very very clearly what the disciples should be asking as jesus says i'm leaving is okay what's the plan how will we How should we effectively carry out the mission that you've placed upon our shoulders? Instead, what do they focus on? They don't focus on the next step that Christ has for them. They focus on the fact that, what? You're leaving us? And that requires a response from Christ. One writer said it this way. He said, the disciples are more concerned about Christ's departure than they are about the calling that he has given them. regrettably, I think we could say that the disciples in this context are much like us, right? We tend to be very focused on our own comfort and our own security, preoccupied by our own fate and sense of feeling of abandonment. That's where the disciples are. And Jesus is like, you're asking me about, you're not asking about where I'm going. You should be asking about what is the mission that you have given to us? What is the goal that you would like to see us fulfill? The result of this misfocus, this turn from mission, is that the disciples are, as the text says, filled with grief. And the idea of being filled with grief is that they are filled to the max to the point that they are debilitated by it. Okay, so because they have lost a focus on the power and promises that Christ has given them, they submit a complaint to him. And I believe when Jesus says, none of you ask where I'm going, none of you are concerned about my future plans. You're concerned about your immediate uncomfortable situation. And so Jesus calls them out. This complaint about his departure, this feeling of abandonment and fear overcoming, comes in the face of very large promises. Let me just read a couple of these for you. Chapter 14 of verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father to give The counselor to live in you, as Pastor James spoke a few weeks ago, so that you are never alone. 14.18, I am not leaving you as orphans. I am, in another way, spiritually coming to you by the Spirit and abiding presence. 14.26, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. He will teach and remind you so that you may have peace. Chapter 15 and verse 5, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes and you abide in him, you will bear much fruit. He talked about an excessive productivity in the life of the disciples. In chapter 15, 11, he says, I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And in this text, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to cycle back to the similar themes with different focuses and emphasis about the necessity of the work of the spirit, not only in the world around us, but also in the individual life of his followers. So that the response of Christ in this patient teaching, he doesn't say, you know what guys I had enough with you. I'm going to go get another group of 12 disciples and we're going to start over. It's not what he does. He's patient with them. He has understanding of them. He's not shocked by where they are at this moment. Instead, he continues to prepare his own for what they are about to face. Verse 7, here's what the text says. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Now, this is interesting. This is contrary to fact, contrary to what the disciples would think. Jesus says, you're complaining because I'm leaving. My departure is troubling you. But you need to understand that it is for your benefit, it is for your good, it is for your growth that I am going away. Notice what verse 7 goes on to say. Unless I go away, the advocate that was promised in the previous chapters will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this, this is, to me, a fascinating portion of Scripture. Contrary to the the opinion of the disciples, Jesus says, it is to your advantage. It is profitable for you if I go away. And, folks, here I think is why. Now, just see if this makes sense. When God was present on earth in the person of Christ, he had chosen to live in a limited facility, his physical body. He could not be, by his own choice as divinity, Everywhere, he chose to be in one place with his disciples. By the Spirit, Christ could come, go, and then send his Spirit to indwell all believers at all times. And that truth, that promise, is the means by which Jesus aims to quell the anxiety of his disciples so that they can get back focused on the mission of making him known to the world around them. And so the remainder of this text focuses on the coming of God's helping presence. And I want you to see uh, how verse 7 states this. He says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word advocate is a beautiful word. Okay. one, One interpreter called it God's helping presence. I like that. In, in the Greek, the word literally means someone who is called alongside with the mission to assist and help an individual succeed. Pretty much, if you've been watching the uh, Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Cavaliers series, uh, if you've been watching that, you have watched two coaches that are very skilled at what they do. And typically, along the side of the court, you'll see them pacing, often crossing the line that they're not supposed to cross. And You are always say, why don't they call that stuff, right? That coach is pacing. What's he doing? He's walking beside the players as they move up and down the court, doing what? Advising them how they can best succeed in the struggle. He comes alongside with the purpose of informing and assuring success. That's the aim of a good coach. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. I'm going, that is better because when I go, I will then send from my Father the Spirit and the Trinity begins to move into action here. Jesus wants to, his disciples know, I'm not leaving you, I'm coming to you in a different form. God will take up an abiding presence in your heart to bring change in your life, change that will endure. Now, that's an encouraging message. And Jesus is saying, don't don't be disturbed about my departure. My departure is better for you. You're resenting it. You're resisting it. It is for your good that I am going. Because when I go, I will send God's personal presence to you. And I want you then to look, as the text continues, at the two ways now in which the coming of the Spirit for the disciples is better than the personal presence of Christ. And this is a fascinating Account for me verses 8 through 11. So I'm going to send the counselor advocate to you, God's helping presence. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, so the focus of the Spirit's ministry in the beginning is what it's a focus on the world in terms of sin righteousness, and judgment. Okay, that's this is the realm in which the Spirit first works. Secondly, he's going to move to the ministry of the Spirit to believers who live in that world or the world that we live in. So what are the benefits for the world when the Spirit comes to take up residence in the people of God? How does it work? How does it affect? Verse 8 says, when he comes, he will convince. The idea of this word is that he will convict the world. Okay, and the word convict here is important to grasp, and it 's a difficult word in a in a culture like ours where we 're all about don 't judge don 't tell people that their behavior is unacceptable right just redirect all right don 't don 't be negative everybody should have the right to make the choices they want to make. The Bible does not stand on that side of philo- philosophical thinking okay this text says that the spirit comes to convince or convict. And the idea is this. He aims to prove to people where they are in the wrong. He aims also to make them aware of their perilous condition and to drive home their personal need. This is a strong work. If you're not familiar with this thought, the Spirit of God aims to clarify for you what is wrong so that he can bring healing into your life he comes to not coddle you and tell you things that you want to hear he comes to tell you the truth and he aims that his people as the spirit works through them would be people of truth who tell the truth to a world that so desperately needs to hear it he comes to convince and it's going to move into three categories He's going to convince about sin. And if you look at verse 9 now, he says, about sin, because people do not believe in me. And folks, here's the basic thrust of Scripture. Believing in Jesus and his cross work is the means by which true forgiveness for sin comes. All right, He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. He is the one who by his blood cleanses us from sin. The problem is that most people don't take sin very seriously. We live in a world where I would say the word sin is it's, it's like the three-letter word, okay? It is seldom spoken, and more sadly, it is rarely understood. But the Spirit of God will not overlook our sinfulness. He aims to clarify what it is so that we can seek true help. here's what I would say. First of all, there is the fact of sin that the Spirit is pointing out. That all sin and fall short of the glory of God. If you're visiting today, you're not amongst religious people who are better than you. You're not. You're amongst sinners who have found a Savior and aim and desire to proclaim Him. God wants to see your sin so that you will begin to seek His solution to it through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is a gracious work of god that honestly diagnoses and lets you know where you are i remember in my own life the time that god made me aware of the nature of my sin because i think most of the struggle was understanding its seriousness because we don't see it as what it really is it is high-handed rebellion against the creator it is me saying i know god made me but it's my life thank you don't mess with it When I was 20 years old, I remember my, my state of mind at that time was, I knew that God had a calling on my life for preaching and ministry. I knew that. I, to the best of my ability, resisted that call, knowing that it's what God wanted. And I comforted myself by saying, you know what? I haven't drifted off into all the terrible things that other people drift into. And it was self-justification and self-righteousness. To think that since I wasn't doing certain things, I was right with God. When in fact, the God who had called me was being spurned and rejected. And what I was doing with God was rebellion. Folks, here's what I think you need to realize. The essence of our sinfulness that the Spirit seeks to point out is that you are a rebel in need of a gracious Savior. The day that thought hit me, my heart was broken and changed. God affected something deep in me because I realized it wasn't I'm simply ignoring God. No. What I was doing was shaking my fist in God's face saying, I'm going to live the life that I want in my family business. Thank you. I wanted that more than I wanted what God wanted. Folks, that's the essence of sin. It's when God says, do this, and I say, no, thank you. I'm going to do this. And the day that God shows you that is a glorious day it is a gift of god that he shows us our sinfulness romans 3:10 says this it says there is none righteous not even one all turn aside all go their own way if you're here this morning you say you know what i don't know if i could live to follow god you're amongst people that had the same experience and difficulty it's a common problem we all turn aside we all want our life the way we want it, not the way God wants it, apart from the work of the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, He begins to convict about sin. He begins to convict about the attitude that I have towards God and seeks to adjust it. That convicting is a gracious work of God. While most redefine sin to minimize it and call it mistakes or it becomes a snicker word, we need to realize that the Spirit of God comes to show us the true nature Of our relationship with God. He aims to bring correction. One writer said it this way. He said the world's deepest misery. And lostness. Is not it's moral imperfection. But it's estrangement from God. And it's refusal to be called out of that condition. By the one God sent for that purpose. Listen to that. The world's deepest misery and lostness is not its moral imperfection your deep problem is not that you're flawed it's not that you make mistakes your deepest problem is that your sin your rebellion against god my rebellion against god brings estrangement from the god that i long to know and and he calls it our refusal to be called out of that condition by the one who sent who god sent for that purpose, if you today begin to hear the Spirit of God knock on the door of your heart, I would encourage you this morning: swing the door wide open, and say, "God, I am open to what it is that you want to show me." I understand from this portion of the Scripture that maybe you've never heard before that God is is seeking to do something in my life. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not a deeply religious person. You're probably blessed. You probably will be able to hear the Spirit of God more freely and less unhindered. He aims to show you your sin and the seriousness of it. Also, the text says that he aims to convict about righteousness. And this is a, it's an interesting statement. He wants to convict you about your righteousness. So in what way could that be true? Can I say it this way? Most people in the world see themselves as essentially righteous. Fair statement? Very few people come up to me and say, you know what? I am one bad, sorry, sick individual. That's not how most people see themselves. You know what most people are glad for? They're glad for their neighbors because their neighbor's behavior makes them feel good about their own. You understand what I'm saying? We're thankful that there are deeply sinful people around us because then we feel less bad about our own sinfulness. But we are not better off. Here, I think, is the thrust of this text. I think that the Spirit of God aims... And as you read through the Gospel of John, you will notice that most of Jesus' public interactions are with righteous religious people. Let me put in a word in there. With self-righteous religious people who trust in themselves. Go back to John 18. It's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that come to church. And the Pharisee gets up and what does he do? He talks about his righteousness. And the publican beats himself upon the chest saying, God, I am convinced that I am a sinner. I am convinced that I don't measure up to your standards. Be merciful to me. But there's this guy. Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Especially like, and this is literally what it says, especially like this tax collector. And here's what Jesus wants to do by the Spirit. If your heart feels better about your own righteousness because you continue to compare yourself to a lesser standard of those around you, Jesus wants to shatter your righteousness. He wants to strip you of it. He wants you to see that it is deficient and ineffective. That it is not, God is not looking for you to be better than the people around you. He's looking for you to be holy to the blood of his son. And when that truth comes, here's what you're going to say. God, help me. I'd like to be different. I sense distance from God. I sense that I have been separated from God. I don't know what to do. Here's what you need to do. Look at your self-justification. Look at the things that have kept you from God that make you feel good about yourself and realize that it is deficient. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 3. He said, I used to think that I was oh so righteous. And then he comes to say, but I realized that my righteousness was deficient. So I considered it rubbish. I considered it the stuff that should be in the trash can. So the spiritual clothing that Paul wore as a Pharisee and as a keeper of God's law and as one who prayed on a regular basis, all of that facade had to be stripped off so that the true sinner could be exposed, so the true righteousness through Christ could be received. Here's what Paul says, God, take away my righteousness and put it in the dumpster and clothe me with the righteousness of Christ so that I am fitted for fellowship with you, which is what you were truly created for. And you will never be at rest until you have the righteousness of Christ, which comes by grace through faith, and God begins to work a beautiful and glorious change in your life. Along the lines of this thought that people tend to think of themselves as good. Can I say this? The truth is that many of us hide so much that we are ashamed of. Isn't that true? Have you ever shocked yourself in the level of your sinfulness? Have you ever caught yourself in an interaction with your mate? I have, okay? Okay, so this is self-disclosure where the attitude that you display is so utterly acceptable that you hope that no one knows. Ever been there? Here's the way I see it in my life. I, I do some part-time work for a, a fire safety company. And I, this is, they know I'm a pastor, so it, it kind of warps the whole picture terribly, <laughs> Okay? When I walk in, I hear the girl say, Pastor's here. <laughs> which basically means what? I'm like, hey, what's up with that? <laughs> but when I, when, I went, when I studied through this, I, I, this kind of made sense to me. Folks, there's a sense in which all of us don't want people to know how sinful we really are. We want the, them to think that we are righteous. But that righteousness is deficient. My... Just my presence with a title causes people not to want to be known as the person who said X, Y, or Z. It happens all the time. People apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, you're a pastor. I'm like, I'm a sinner who needs the grace of God. That's what we all are. And and by the way, you don't answer to me for your words. There's a whole lot of things you're saying when I'm not around that God sees and God hears. And here's here's the truth. When you become honest about your sinfulness, you will realize that your righteousness is truly deficient and you will flee to the cross of Christ. Acknowledging God, on my best day, righteously, I'm a sinner. My motive for being righteous is that I appear to be better than I really am. I think that's ultimately why at the office they say, shh, pastor's coming in. Because there's a desire to appear more righteous than we really are. I'm not criticizing the people at the office. I'm just saying they're just like me. Right? What does Jesus want to do by the Spirit? He wants you to say that the righteousness that you're pursuing by yourself is deficient. And the Apostle Paul said, I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, but that which comes from Christ by faith. I want the righteousness of Christ. And that is a gift that God in Jesus, freely gives. It also says that he comes to convince the world about judgment. Verse 11. And I'll just say this quickly. Until you realize that your sinfulness and your deficient righteousness mandates the judgment of a holy God, your heart will not move. But when you understand that I deserve the wrath of God. Because of my sinfulness and my self centeredness and my ugliness that I don't want anyone to know about, I realize based on the Word of God that what I really deserve is His judgment. But when I realize that it is deserved, it begins to break my heart and move me towards a Savior. Can I give you a couple of illustrations from Scripture? John chapter 4, the woman caught in adultery. She had a promiscuous life outside of marriage. That was her life. Jesus says, call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. I've had six. Now there's part of. There's part of you you could say, oh my, Jesus is being so mean. Because the reason Jesus said, call your husband is he knew that. He knew her life. Why did he do that? He wanted her to have a clear understanding of who she was so that she could truly enter into a relationship with him as a broken sinner seeking grace and forgiveness. It's the only way you come to God. When you realize I deserve his judgment, but he freely reaches out to me and invites me into a relationship by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the glory of the cross. And so the Spirit comes to assist believers in fulfilling their mission by showing the world the nature of its sin, It's righteousness and the judgment it deserves. He works to open hearts. And in this sense, the Holy Spirit continues through us what Christ began. We proclaim a powerful and robust gospel when by the Spirit we speak truth about sin that convicts. And I would argue this this morning after studying this text, that a message about God that does not address the sense of sin and shame and abandonment that people live with, resulting in estrangement from God, but instead aims to please and console, I would, I would argue that a gospel that aims to please and console is in fact a false, weak gospel that will never convict and never lead to true saving faith. You see, the Spirit of God comes to uncover my heart to unmask who i really am so they can seek the solution that i really desperately need you know a doctor is in an interesting position a surgeon particularly he may do an mri conduct a scan see something that if unaddressed will lead to death it's serious in nature if he is unwilling to judge and speak truth to the individual he will be an ineffective doctor that doctor also knows this. In order for that cancerous, malignant tumor that will be fatal untreated, if I don't have the courage to cut this person, to remove that, then I will never be a good doctor. And this is the same truth, that when we share the truth of God's Word, hopefully you share it in the deepest uh, sense of affection, love, Desire for people to know the truth from God about their lives. But the truth must be shared so that people can see their true need and find a true healing for it. One writer said it this way. He said, the gospel of Christ will wound you before it heals you. It will sting you before it sings to you the glory of Christ. What does God do? God graciously reaches in and puts his finger on the problem. We feel the pain. And then by the power of the Spirit, we turn to God and say, God, I am a sinner. Forgive me and save me. Change the trajectory of my life. Rescue me from darkness. And bring me into the kingdom of your dear son. Now, what does this mean for the mission that God gives his disciples? And I, I love this thought. Dia Carson, speaking about this text, he made this observation about the promise of this text. If this text says that the Spirit of God convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and He takes up residence in me, what does that mean? It means that I am the instrument that God aims to use to make His truth known to the world so that they can experience a true sense of their sin, a, an understanding that the righteousness is flawed, and that judgment is deserved, but grace is available through Christ. Okay, If the Spirit of God is the one who convicts, convinces shows through us what does that mean it means that no effective ministry of seeing people come to christ occurs apart from the spirit do you understand that in sharing the good news of christ with people and cultivating relationships and seeking to see people come into a personal relationship with christ do you understand that you are cooperating with god himself who takes a residence in his disciples To make you effective in that ministry. That should bring you such confidence, transformation, joy, a sense of mission in your life. Not duty. But I have the privilege of cooperating with God to make known to people glorious truth that will change their life forever. Carson says this, and he's just retiring from ministry. He said, I would quit all forms of Christian ministry immediately. I were not convinced that Jesus is building his church, that Father, Father is giving over a people to his son, and that Holy Spirit is working to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Far from being abandoned to their task, as the disciples thought, the disciples are about to receive exactly what they need. So instead of being overcome with grief, what should it be? They should be being filled with joy. God, who is with us in Christ, is coming to be in us by the Spirit. And when he comes, he will enliven, activate, and empower our ministry to the world around us, which for now is bringing them fear. They're intimidated by it. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go, because if I go, I will send the Spirit to you. And when he comes, he will bring massive change in the lives of people around you. 13 through 15, real quick, or 12 through 15. Jesus says this. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Meaning there's a whole lot more revelation that is going to come from the Spirit of God that will be inscripturated in the New Testament books, that will explain the glory of the cross. And Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying. Okay, that's enough for today. It's kind of that, that's enough for today. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So let me see if I can summarize this in a few points so the ministry of the spirit to the world convicting of sin righteousness and judgment the ministry of the spirit in and through believers i I think it is fundamentally this the spirit comes to make much of jesus he comes to make much of jesus verse 13 he declares and clarifies truth about christ he leads us to a proper understanding of saving and redeeming events. Particularly in context, the promise relates to the following part of the story in the Gospel of John, which is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Here's what Jesus realizes. The disciples can't handle all of that now. He's promised it to them in the past, but he's going to let the fullness of that be impressed upon them by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is trusting that the spirit of god will declare and clarify truth about his cross work. And then verses 14 and 15. He will glorify me because he will because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you all that belongs to the father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me and will make it known to you. What is this work of the spirit? This work of the Spirit is that he will clarify truth about Christ so that it can be expressed to people around you in the power of the Spirit so that a convicting and converting effect takes place and lives, in the end, are changed by the power of God. In John 15, 27, Jesus said this, When the Counselor comes, whom I send to you, the Spirit of truth, who goes from the Father, he will testify about me. So that's the work of the Spirit. And then Jesus says this, And you must testify so the spirit of god will bring truth to mind clarify that truth so so that it can be communicated in the power of the spirit with a convicting and converting effect and that's the spirit in which we should go out into the world in which we live you must testify about me jesus said to the disciples can i say this this morning i believe that the greatest excuse for why we as the church do not share the goodness of christ and the good news of Christ, is number one, fear, what people will think, and secondly, a fear of ignorance. Fear of what people will think, fear of coming up in a situation where I don't know what to say. Mark 13, 11 addresses that concern. It says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Folks, do you understand what that means? That as we begin to move in the context of obedience as a proclaimer of God's truth, what happens? The Spirit of God comes alongside to empower and to clarify, to bring to mind the message that he once shared. So that as, again, I move into the context of sharing glorious truth with people, I do it in the power of the Spirit. Because apart from Him, there is no effective evangelism. But with Him, there can be an effective communication of truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. May God help us to come to a place in our hearts where we say, God, I want to be utterly dependent upon You so that every day of my life is transformed into a mission of taking Your truth to a world that desperately Needs to hear it. Can I conclude by saying this? I think this text would argue, since the work of the Spirit is to take truth from, or Father, Father shares truth, Son communicates that to Spirit, Spirit shares that through us. If that is the flow, and if the, if, if, the, if the thrust of this discussion is about the glory of Christ and the things about Him that will be revealed through the New Testament writers, then I think we could argue these concluding thoughts. Christ is to be at the center of all that we celebrate, sing, affirm, and teach. Once the Spirit convicts a heart, once he shows someone that there's a need, making Jesus known is the essence of our mission. Because Jesus proclaimed to a convicted sinner is hope. Does that make sense? So that's the the message we share. And I think the church needs to be careful that we don't get enamored with lesser things you see the main thing for the church is the proclamation of christ that's the thrust of this text his saving work his redeeming work that is the thrust of what we're to share but what i notice in the church is that we tend to get caught up in in fad-based christianity when i say fads i mean there are often books that float around that become incredibly popular but don't put the focus on christ as, as I think back through my ministry, I've seen books about heaven, a plethora of them come out, books about angels, books about spiritual gifts, books about, and, and the church, church tends to run on tangents. We need to run on the main thing as we look forward into moving into a new facility. We need to be sure that the glory of Christ and the truth of Christ is the thrust of our work, making him known in an effective way. That's the, the goal for all the hard labor that goes into putting a, build, a building together, all the sacrifices that are put in financially to make it happen. The aim of that is that Christ would be known. If not, it's not worth it. We, we should put those kinds of efforts into the main thing. And Jesus himself is the main thing. In fact, I would argue that the acid test of the ministry leader teacher or preacher is, do they make much of Jesus? Do they share the saving benefits of his work with the aim of exalting him so that sinners can come to know him? That's our desire. And that's what should drive us. The sad truth is that for many in the church, the Holy Spirit has often become the weird uncle. He's the individual that is ignored because of overemphasis or because of extremes and excessive emotionalism. May we not be a church that sadly ignores the Spirit because of fear, because of concern about excessive emotionalism, because of tangents, because of untethered teaching. May we be people that are grounded in biblical truth about the work of the Spirit, and may we understand that we as a church are desperately dependent upon the work of the Spirit to see the gospel go forth with power that brings saving To people's lives and we agree on that that we would not treat him because of fear in weak ways but that we would welcome embrace and encourage the work of the spirit of god amongst our church family in these ways where he makes truth about christ known anything of of discussion about the work of the spirit that doesn't in the end aim towards proclaiming christ i'm going to tell you i think is in some level out of balance with what the word of god as a whole is teaching. Lastly, this morning in communion, we will make a proclamation. And the proclamation that we will make this morning is that there. if you're here this morning and you say, I have sensed by the work of the Spirit over, over, over recent months a sense of my own sinfulness, the weakness of my righteousness, and the fact that I am deserving of the judgment of God, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you where you sit this morning, if you sense the Spirit of God calling and convicting and drawing, convincing, I would encourage you to say to Him, okay, God, today I'm responsive. Today I want you to change my heart. Today I want the righteousness of Christ applied as the righteousness of Tim Hoff is stripped away. I want to know what it is to be forgiven. I want to know what it is to be dressed in the glory of a glorious, wonderful, forgiving Savior. Jesus said this about the Lord's table. He said, every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? That what this proclaims is what the Spirit of God comes to proclaim. And it's what we're sent to proclaim. Do you see the emphasis? It's all about Jesus. This should govern our worship. It should govern our speaking. It should govern our teaching. Ultimately, what does it say about Jesus? because he is, in fact, the message of God to the world around us. He convicts you this morning not to wound you, but to heal you. He stands in our place on the cross and takes the judgment that was headed in our direction and that we deserved. And that is why we, the church, say, hallelujah, what a Savior. An old hymn that we sung in my church was, More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. If you know Christ, may the spirit of God enlarge him for you today. May he clarify Christ for you. Bring into focus. And if you've never trusted Christ, may today be the day when you say, God, I see my sin. I see my righteousness. It's a sham. I know I deserve your judgment, but because of your grace, it fell on Christ. In light of his work, bearing that for me, forgive me and save me and cleanse me by his shed blood. Father, as we stand before you this morning, we become very aware of our sinfulness. As we listen to the work of the Spirit prompting, convicting, we sense that we desperately need or needed a Savior. Lord, this morning I know that there are people in this room who have trusted Christ, who have seen their sinfulness and their weak righteousness and the judgment they deserve and have fled to the cross for saving. And Lord, I'm certain this morning there are some with us, friends, family, whatever it may be, that perhaps this is new for them today. Father, I know that your Spirit works in mighty and powerful ways. So I ask that in in, in the hearts of those that need it today, that you would open the door, that you would convince, that you would convict and draw and save some today for your glory. And as we partake of the elements, Lord, that proclaim your death till you come, I pray that we will do it with a clean heart. We would follow Paul's admonition. So we first examine ourselves and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And in so doing, proclaim forgiveness is found in Christ through his shed blood and broken body. We pray, God, that you would work these blessings in us as we seek to remember for the glory of Christ. It is in his name this morning that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen.